What happens when we die? How do we cope with our own traumas? What is our inner voice telling us? This week, author and inspirational speaker, Stephanie Arnold, on Nine Questions with Eric Oliver. So, Dre, tell me something. Do you ever have premonitions? You know what? I I don't have premonitions, but I do feel like I can sense when something is off. I, I think I, I, I tend to trust my gut when I feel like I'm in a, in a dangerous, could be dangerous situation. So if I'm like out in the city and it's late at night and I'm with a girlfriend and I see like a certain like street that looks a little, eh, you know, I'm like, nope, that's a bad idea. You know what I mean? So not necessarily a premonition, but a, a tingle. I get like a, like a tingly in my neck. That is like, nope, mm -mm, not going to do that. Right, right. But how do you know that that's, how do you differentiate between just that and garden variety anxiety? (laughs) Because my garden variety anxiety is all the time, honey. That's just constant (laughs) state of being. So this is like like the ultra anxiety. This is like the whipped (laughs) topping (laughs) with the cherry. Okay, well, um, our guest this week is someone who lives with a lot of heightened ultra anxiety. Amazing person, yeah. And yeah, and so why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about Stephanie? Sure. Stephanie Arnold was an Emmy-nominated television producer when she had a deep premonition of her own death that actually occurred when her second child was born. She ended up sharing her story in her best-selling book, 37 Seconds, the amount of time she was flatlining in the ER. She now works as an inspirational speaker and patient advocate in the healthcare system. So so how did you meet her? I was introduced to Stephanie by Laura Berman, who was the first Mm -hmm. guest on our podcast. And uh, Laura told me her story, and I was really intrigued because here was this person who was an otherwise very normal, capable, very successful person mm-hmm. who suddenly started having these premonitions at a premonition of her own death, you know, when she was going to be giving birth. She actually then flatlined and died for 37 seconds during complications of delivering her second child. And then since that time has had this really, really heightened kind of sensory perception about things that are about to happen. Yeah. And so how does someone who is otherwise, you know, cogent, rational, functioning in the world deal with that kind of experience? Like, does this mean that, you know, if you're starting to feel this way, do you use this to mean I'm going crazy? Is this a sign of mental dysfunction? Is this a sign of some special gift? What do I do with all of this new information? And, you know, Stephanie is just a delightful, delightful person and very smart. And I think what she's having to do in this extraordinary way is what we all have to do, which is how do we negotiate with our intuitions and know when our intuitions are leading us correctly and when they may be leading us astray. So Mm -hmm. I was just thrilled to talk to this really smart person about this kind of extraordinary circumstance and to hear all the wisdom that she's learned from having to deal with that. So very, very happy to share my great conversation with Stephanie Arnold. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to meet you and I'm really excited to explore some questions with you. So let's start with our first question. It's the big, broad one. 
which is what are you? I am a mom. I am a wife. I am a soulmate. I am creative. I am empathetic. I am a bunch of things, but if we're looking at characteristics or we're looking at what I do in my earlier life, I thought I was what I did and now I am who I am. Can we, can we explore that a little bit? Because, um, what's the difference between those two things? It's quite emotional because I think in, in my youth and many people know this, if you're in New York, one of the very first questions that anyone asks like, Oh, so what do you do for a living? And you identify yourself with what you do in your career. And I had been this TV producer and working in television entertainment since I was 14. So I've always known myself as a TV producer or a music video director. I never looked at the qualities or the characteristics of who I am as exactly who I am. And the older I got and the more I became my children's mother where no one knew who I was or the accolades or anything that I did in my past, I mean, I remember we were preparing for my daughter's bat mitzvah and we were going to do one of those videos, you know, a concept video. And the producers were talking to me about concept and scripts and everything. And I was like, well, we're not going to do this. And my daughter says, you know, why are you putting so much into this? I said, because of what I did. <laughs> and she's like, well, what did you do? And I explained to her, I used to work in TV and, and she's like, oh, you were cool. <laughs> and I was like, I just, I forgot all about it. Well, I didn't forget, but, I, but that part of me was compartmentalized. And these children have only known me as their mom. And then my husband knows me as a different person when he met me. And so the older I'd gone and now into my fifties, I've gotten much more comfortable taking a step back where somebody says, who am I? I explain the type of person I am as opposed to here, let me, let me dish out my resume so that you curate me and tell me that I'm a valuable enough person in this world. And that has been a long, arduous journey for me. I'm curious to ask you about this because you've had these very profound, intuitive experiences and I'm wondering how that shapes your conception of your own existence. You know, those nights when you're lying in bed, about to go to sleep, close your eyes. And so you're just with your you. (laughs) And do you have a, a different sense of your own being now from that? I don't know if, if all women would say this, but you go through so many hormonal changes. Uh So well into your fifties, you're in menopause. And so you're like, who the crap am I? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you know, this is not my body. This is not, I don't feel like it. Why am I having these hot flashes? Um, whereas, you know, when I feel energy empathically, I heat up. Well, now that I have hot flashes, they get conflated. And so I'm like, is that a hot flash or is this something spiritual? Should I pay attention to it? No, it's a freaking hot flash. Um, So, so those nights alone recently have been more of when is this going to stop? When is this ride going to stop? But I'm in my body, which is before 
there has been this separation between physical and spiritual self, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. where you, your intuitive self can feel things, your consciousness feels things outside of your body and your body feels things delayed. Now I feel like those two are finally starting to cross each other and I'm in my body feeling and also meditating them away and trying to, it's not working really well, but I'm, I'm in it. I'm present. Right. Right. Has anything revealed itself in those moments to you? Like the, at least temporarily. Maybe? <laughs> <laughs> that it's difficult to be a mom and a woman and, <laughs> and a wife and try and juggle everything at once. And it, you know, that part sucked. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, you know, has it revealed it? No, it's revealed certain pleasures about being present. Whereas before I wasn't, I was on this roller coaster, not roller coaster, a hamster wheel. I'd mm-hmm. say when I was younger and I'm like, you go to the next success, the next chapter, the next movement. What, what are we doing? Okay. Then you have one baby, then you have two, then you have whatever. And it, it's a nonstop hamster wheel. And I think in those moments now I look forward to the quiet. I look forward to oh, there is no goal right now. And I think, you know, when you have these goals, it keeps you away from the pain. It keeps you really far away from dealing with whatever traumas or whatever is real that you're running away from. And so the revelation in those moments is like, I'm supposed to feel this. I can't run away from it. There is no next goal. There is no, the only goal you have right now is to purge whatever you've been tethered to for all of these decades. Sure. Why don't we move to question two, which is, what is your purpose? My purpose has changed. I I thought in the beginning of my life that it was just to make, again, the, the career, make an impact on an audience. I was doing a lot of salacious, exploitative reality TV shows. (laughs) I was like, I'm going to hell for this one. (laughs) But you know, there is something about entertainment, right? It removes you from your reality for a while. So there's a reason why people are addicted to reality TV. And even though it's highly produced, which of course we will not say that. No, but we will say that, that it's, you know, it's, it's, but so is reality, by the way. So. Exactly. exactly. I mean, you, you curate whatever you want for your Instagram profile, right? right? It's like, okay, here, here's what my life looks like. But it's so, it's enhanced reality, like we like to say, that my, I thought my purpose was like, look, I've known what I wanted to do since I was 14. That's fantastic. I'm on this mission. I was the youngest to do X, Y, Z. And then you get to the point where you're no longer the youngest. And then... I got to a point, I was in China and I was meditating with these Taoist priests and I was walking this mountain that was called Wudong Mountain, which is where Kung Fu originated from. It's where they shot Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. And I was on this journey of just, what is it all for? I had money in the bank. I had this great career, but I had no one to share it with. So I was like, what is going on with me in order to have deeper connections? And I didn't have those deep connections. And then through that process, I was like, okay, I have to deal with my crap. And then you deal with the crap. And then all of a sudden I meet my husband, right? And I, I met him through a matchmaker. Uh, we connect and he relocates me to Chicago. Well, Chicago really isn't the, I was living in LA at the time. Chicago really isn't the hub for entertainment. Right. So then I focused my attention on, you know, producing children, right? I went from one production to another 
And then I had this experience through the birth of our second child. And when I flatlined and I came back through the next, however you want to articulate it as this next chapter, I really focused on producing reality shows about near-death experiences because who the hell wants to deal with the amount of trauma that came along with everything that happened? And I couldn't sell it for the life of me. Mm -hmm. And then I had to sit back and say, the universe, God, whoever is telling me, I need to really understand what happened. And that set me on this mission to, okay, before I was producing content to help entertain others, to remove them from their traumas momentarily, to, no, I need to dive deeply into this trauma work, post-trauma work, and utilizing my own experience, living through it, educating hospitals, clinicians about listening to the patient differently Mm -hmm. and also helping patients speak up when they sense something is wrong without a doubt has become this passion. But like, this is part of my mission. I can't say that it's all my mission because I have three children who look at me and say, okay, how are we, what are you doing to help us in sure. order to accomplish that part of your mission as any parent would yeah, and also be the soulmate and the wife to my husband and receive that love and learn about unconditional love both ways. So there are many lessons, but I really feel through, I would have never been on this trajectory without this incredibly traumatic experience. Yeah. It's funny with purpose because there's layers of purpose. There's the, what we think of as the mundane layer of purpose, which is necessary, but we don't really always validate it as such, or oftentimes we give it short shrift and we think, Oh, my purpose must be to cure cancer, you know, but no, your purpose is also to take care of your family. And, and so how do we go about reconciling and and finding meaning at all of those levels at some time. And is what you were saying struck me as, as interesting in that a number of people I've spoken to on the podcast have said, I found my purpose when I was at my lowest, like when everything kind of got stripped away. And when I was at the moment of losing everything is when I found my truth in that way. And it seems to be analogous to, to your experience. Yeah. I think finding a purpose in death is to rebirth of sorts. I think the, in the beginning coming out of it, the ego's involved because you're like, okay, I'm back on that hamster wheel. I could use this as a marketing tool just to, you know, <laughs> sell shows and, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and my ego kept getting bruised. Everybody wanted to talk my experience, but no one wanted to buy the show. And I'm like, this is not what I'm supposed to do. But I understood why I was doing it much later, even with the book, you know, the book came along and, you know, I was like, okay, let me write. But I kept getting sick through this process and understanding it was shedding some layers to that onion, which were important in order for me to stand, in order to walk again, in order to, to be part of society again. Nothing, nothing is ever the same, but it definitely gave me clarity for sure. Sure. And so this took you on this new path that you hadn't been going on before. And I'm curious, how did that how that new path evolved for you. So can you talk through that a little bit? So what have you learned kind of in this new direction? I've talked about how intuitive I was as a kid. My grandmother was Santera in Cuba and she believed in extrasensory perceptions. As I was a kid, I saw death, but I, but as a kid, when it happens 
two times to people you love, where you see it before it happens, you think you're willing it to happen. So I shut it down. So I, I call that a level of low voltage, right? Then I have my premonitions that led to my flatlining, so clinical death. So then you're, you go asystolic, you get unplugged. So you are, there's no electricity running through your body. When you get plugged back in, you are now on high voltage. Mm-hmm. You feel everything. So I could feel your pain from a hundred feet away. I could, I, I couldn't walk into a crowd without getting knocked on my ass. There was no way that it took years. So there was obviously some neurological deficit for the first six to eight months. And then the PTSD started. And then, and then the search for how is it I saw everything before it happened. And, you know, the change evolved by my research. So call it the DNA of a TV producer that is constantly hammering at or chiseling at the truth. But it was person after person, therapist after therapist telling me, you know, let's not worry about that right now. We don't have answers for you right now. Let's just worry about getting you out of the trauma. And so I was balancing being the mom and wife again, at least trying to be at the same time with chiseling at the truth at the same time, trying to imagine, am I manifesting? Like what happens if I manifest Like if I'm thinking about a heart attack, am I going to now have a heart attack? It was really difficult for years, including being the loving spouse for years because I was living in a bubble where everybody told me I was crazy. So coming out of it, my truth was what actually happened and the doctors say, and TV and everybody saying, we want you on our show and to talk about this because it can help people. And at the same time, searching for this truth. And so how I changed, how I evolved over that was like, I had to search for my own answers. And when I got them, and that was through the evolution of writing this book, when I got them, I still had a hard time accepting the fact that there was this other dimension, that, that there was this spiritual entity there. Of course, I had, I've always had faith in God, but I wasn't ready to embrace it in a way that would be so public where I would be like, okay, here's this near-death experience and let me share all of these. And I'm married to a PhD economist from University of Chicago who's a former Air Force pilot. You know, for him, data and stats and and analyzing it is his DNA, probably yours as well. You know? <laughs> I try so, to keep that a secret. <laughs> yeah, wait till you have this conversation with your wife and how where this is going to go. So, you know, I was constantly telling him that this is real. And my premonitions continued to happen. So there would be moments with our children that I would see happening 15 minutes before they'd happen. And at first I would write them down. I'd put the dates on them, but because those visions were very scary of life and death situations, there was a moment where we could have lost Jacob forever. And I didn't voice even after this happened, I didn't have the strength to, to go against what the norm would be because I'm like, maybe it's not real. Maybe I'm just imagining something. Maybe I'm thinking the worst. And then when it happens, I'm like, I can no longer stay quiet. So I look at all of these moments as they're a gift. I did not manifest them. 
I'm sensing them before they happen. And therefore I'm going to speak about them and diffuse some of that energy because then I'm going to prepare for it. So I, I want to unpack two things here, yeah. which to me are, I, I hear going on and I'm very curious about, because on the one hand you have this traumatic experience. And so you're dealing with the trauma of this. On the other hand, you have had an experience that seems like it's opened you up. It's opened you up in a way that is empowering, scary, not overwhelming, logical. Yeah. not logical. And it was both at a cerebral level, like how do I make sense of these experiences that I'm having that I had in terms of these premonitions, but also how do I make sense of all of this new sensory information that's coursing into me? And so I'm curious how those two things relate in your mind. How do you, how do you, how do you see those two things either? Are they separate that you had to deal with piecemeal or do you see them as a piece like connected in some ways? Well, I think because it's all happening to me on a, a visceral and spiritual level, it is happening to me, but I'm handling them both as separate compartments because when I'm dealing with the trauma, I'm acknowledging that this is trauma related. I have PTSD related to the trauma. I also have PTSD when I have something that comes up in these visions and then I'm like, okay, I've got to do something. And it's gotten less over the years because I've learned how to filter them in a way and kind of categorize them and be like, does this person need to know this? Cause it's happening to strangers, like people I just meet, but mostly like when it's trauma oriented, I acknowledge it by, okay, this is trauma repetition. I am dealing with the reason that I'm scared to do this is directly related to that physical experience, that fear about to die. When it's dealing with these visions, I no longer acknowledge, yes, of course, it's because I got plugged back in and now I'm more sensitive to it. I just now know what to do with them differently. Whereas in the beginning, when these visions first started happening, like I'll give, I'll give you an example. I had, um, I had, so the Jacob situation. So my son is turning 10, but when he was two, we were at the McHenry County Fair. So it was like a very large gathering, what have you. And so I was there with another friend of mine. We were at the fairgrounds and everybody's sitting at the picnic table and the mom's like, okay, we'll go get the pizza. But as I'm walking away, I get a vision. And the vision is that Jonathan, my husband is going to be doing this fishing game with Valentina, our oldest, my stepdaughter. And then my middle one would be crawling around the grass with her friend and no one would be paying attention to Jacob and he'd be gone. So we turn around, everybody's at the picnic table. And my friend who knows me is like, what's that? I said, and I explained to her the vision. She's like, well, go tell him. I said, see, we're just post-trauma. And I go up to him and I tell him this. He's going to say, dad's parent different than mom's. Go get the pizza, right? And so against my better judgment, but my sanity, my logical side is that, what am I seeing? Like, this is ridiculous. So I go get the pizza. We're gone for 15 minutes. We come back. They're at the picnic table. I'm a hundred feet away and I don't see Jacob. Yeah. Get closer. I still don't see Jacob. And I scream, where's Jacob? And, and he's like, oh my God. And we go in different directions. And luckily for my heart, the police officer said, did you lose your son? Yeah. So we find him. And as a dad, you could relate. I say to my husband, how long has he been gone? <laughs> you're like, uh, right, uh. right. That was the answer I got. And I said, okay. I said, let me hand my son to our friends. I'll be right back. So I said to Jonathan, I said, can you tell me if you were playing this fishing game with Valentina while Adina was crawling on the grass? And he looks at me and he said, how do you know that? And I walked away and I threw up mm-hmm. because 
I don't know how much time I have. There's no time and space. This is not logical. This is not real. And for him, this is by far not logical, right? And so he said, and he was logical about his answer. He said, why don't we take these visions as gospel, but don't take advantage of it, right? And so I was like, okay, that gave me a to-do after. And so my reaction is different. I might, like we were walking through a public park and I said, I've got a feeling a drug deal is going bad, you know, at the far end. So nothing happened to us. We didn't see anything, but it was a feeling that I got, but he was on alert Mm -hmm. and we made it through the park with safety. I didn't need to go prove myself that this is a a fun party trick. It was just, okay, now I'm on alert. Any way a parent would sit there and say, let's, let's take the glass off the table because the kid might knock it down. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just, I'm feeling danger. Now, are, when you're having these experiences, are, are they frequent? Do they come on? Are there certain situations that are triggering them? Do they seem to have any kind of rhythm, rhyme, no, order they, to No, they are random. They are, that's why I, I've had people reach out and say, do you do readings? I'm like, no, that's not what I do. If you're in my line of sight, like I was pitching the book to be a movie and I was at a very big Hollywood producers conference table like this. And, you know, there were 10 people and no one knows the side of me. I mean, they do now that I've been interviewed a few times, but I don't publicly talk about it because it's not something that I can ground and tell people like this is this web, but these incidences are happening in front of other people. And I think it becomes part of my purpose, mission, if you will. It's like, I have no filter, but it's also happening in front of witnesses. And therefore some of the most logical people in the world are watching and witnessing this and saying, I don't know what this is, but I witnessed this happen. And this is what happened with that, um, that producer, no rhyme or reason sitting there talking about the book. She's like, you know, I'm a skeptical person. I, you know, I, it's not that I don't believe in intuition, but nothing like that's ever happened to me. I'm like, cool. I'm not here to prove myself to you. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of the meeting who I know no one, I start feeling like I'm going to have a heart attack, but I know it's not mine. And imagine you're being interviewed for, I don't know, the biggest project you have sure. going, right? You're this person's going to buy the rights to your book, whatever it is. And my ego shouldn't have let what happened next happen but it did. And so it wasn't my ego. This was almost an out of body experience. I turned to this woman. I said, I'm sorry. There's a woman next to you screaming to you about a dress. I'm talking about her mom and I'm talking about a ghost. Mm-hmm. No, Stephanie, my mom is fine. I said, okay, I'm sorry. There's a, a person in here, a male family member who just had a heart attack. And these are all young associates in development. And they're like, no, 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 no. And she says, you don't think I'm going to have a heart attack. But as she's talking, it's mm-hmm. getting stronger. So I know it's coming from her. Mm-hmm. Okay, Stephanie, don't let the valet, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Here's your valet <laughs> yeah, 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 ticket. Yeah. <laughs> I'm walking out. My friend agent who brought me in, she's like, what's with the theatrics? Yeah, I said, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. All I know is that that I felt this and now I, you know, at least it released. I've got to go back in and tell her. And she's like the matrix. No, you know, like whatever. And so I go back to her office and I knock on her. I said, I'm sorry, can you please check in with your family? You know, I know I blew it. I know I'll never see you again, but can you please do that? And four days later, I get a call from the CEO of the company. And he's like, you know, just letting you know that the office is split spirit and science and you really freaked everybody out. But it's letting you know, like, 
Um, her mother had passed six years before, and she knew exactly the dress you were talking about. And when she got back to her office, her sister in New York called her. I was in L.A. at the time. Her sister in New York called and said, her father had a heart attack at the moment you were feeling it. So she don't ever want to talk about it again, but we're yeah. buying your rights. Yeah. And in that moment, I recognized that this was a woman with a very loud voice for television. She could influence millions of people with listening to this consciousness that exists outside of the body. And it happened to her and she can't deny it happened. Right. And so it was not an ego filled experience. It was actually the opposite. It was, I couldn't get, if my ego was involved, I would have shut up, you know, it wouldn't have happened. So something, and that is less to do with the trauma and more to do with this other side of me that it's almost happening in um, in slow motion, but I can't I can't stop it. That train has left the station. Like that out of body experience. Like if I knew those words were coming out, I would have shoved them back in my mouth. There's no way I would have said it, especially at a meeting like that. Yeah. Well, this this gives me. I I always ask this question next, which is, what are your dreams telling you? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, I kind of want to continue on this theme because this is fascinating about you're having these experiences and they're so out of whack with your ordinary experience and the world you're in. And how do you go about reconciling those? How do you, how do you reconcile the extraordinary with the mundane? And that's kind of what we do when we dream. Yeah. So, but if you want to talk about your dreams too, I'm happy to talk about that. No, no, my dreams are, the only time my dreams are significant is when it's something where it's somebody I haven't seen in a long time, they pop up very clearly, then I call them the next day because there's a reason. The way I reconcile it, so I interviewed somebody, uh, a Vietnam veteran who has these visions. Well, Vietnam, he was a door gunner, helicopter pilot and door gunner, and he talked about these visions he saw before people died or what he did to insert himself into those situations to save lives. Mm-hmm. And in one case that he talked about, he saved 13 children. In another case, everybody died. And he's in his 70s. And he said to me, you know, he's he's a reverend now. He's very spiritual. But he talks about how if it's their karma to experience death, then who is he to intervene? And I respectfully disagreed with him because I said, maybe it was the karma for the 13 children that you saved to have those visions and step in. And maybe it was always, if you want to use karma, that these people were always going to die. It's a horrible conversation to have because you're dealing with life and death and why someone, could you have saved somebody? Could you have prevented their death? And, you know, many nurses I've spoken to have had feelings and have heard their patients say that they were going to die. They didn't take it seriously and they didn't. They, they live with that feeling of what they could have done differently. Sure. For me, how I reconcile it is I'm getting this vision for a reason. There is a way to couch it instead of saying it. Like in the beginning, I was so f- fanatical about just saying, you need your blood checked and you need, you know, go go to the hospital and this, it was, it was so overwhelming that I wasn't a human being anymore. I wasn't, there was no, there was zero filter, but I was also running on fumes after everything that happened. And I was like, okay, this is my mission. I've got to save everybody. And I've got to talk about this. And I've got to, if I feel it, I have to share it. 
now I, I couch it a little differently. Like if, if a message is coming to me, that's very life and death, I feel it viscerally. Like I feel it wherever the pain is or wherever the disease is in my own body. And I just ask more questions. I'm just more conscious and present in those moments with whoever I meet. Like if I never see you again, we've had this moment together and I don't take that for granted. Whoever I meet, it, it was such a close call that I would never be there again, that in these moments, it's like it took this instance to make me recognize that these are the moments that are real. And if we impact each other in a certain way for those brief moments, that's a moment that's filled with joy and that's filled with something that's so much more profound than what I had before. And so I guess I reconcile it now with when they, when it comes in as like this ray of light, it's like this enlightening moment that I need to share with someone. So it's, it's completely unpredictable. It's not like I can prepare for that moment and say, okay, but I do when I, when I give a lecture or if I I speak in public, I shield myself and say, whatever I'm supposed to know, I'm supposed to know. And, and Dr. Laura and I talked about this before. It was like, you know, whatever you're letting in, other than that, you need to shield because there's a lot that comes in, whether one believes it or not. Well, this is a question I had because I I was imagining what would be really for me if I were in your circumstance, very destabilizing and terrorizing, which would be my mind goes all over the place sometimes, depending on what my mood is, you know, so my mind sometimes go to very dark places and sometimes it's everything's hunky-dory. And, you know, and I think, okay, my thoughts are being generated by to rationalize this mood or relative to this mood. And that doesn't mean that whatever I'm thinking at that moment is valid. But if suddenly I'm having thoughts that are premonitions and then, and then the question I would have to have is if any of these sort of negative thoughts, would they be, are they premonitions? And then I become terrified of my own thinking. Right. And, and so how do you, knowing that, you know, there's a part of your brain that's just going to be like, woo, and then the part of your brain that maybe is tapping into a vision of what's going to happen and how do you differentiate between those two? And that must be scary as hell. Yeah. I I mean, if you remember the movie Ghostbusters, Uh remember when Dan Aykroyd has a fleeting thought at the end and he thinks of the Stay Puff Marshmallow. Like it has been decided. Right, right. Immediately afterwards until, you know, I, I finally got my handle on it and that's what I was doing my therapy for was like, and to the doctors and hospital workers, tell me how it is. I'm in a teaching hospital. Tell me how it is. I saw everything three months before it happened. And they were like, look, you know, foreboding happens in the instance of a heart attack or an embolus, but three months before in the detail you had, no, I'm sorry. And then one doctor said to me, self-fulfilling prophecy. And I said, so you want me to believe that, because I have believed it for six months, eight months, whatever. I said, you want me to believe that I can think myself to hemorrhage, hysterectomy, be cut from sternum to pelvis, and be, be clinically dead. And he's like, well, I didn't say I believed it. It's just the only thing I can come up with. I said, well, it's an asshole thing to say. Mm-hmm. I said, because you're basic. I've been dealing with the guilt of thinking that I manifested my own death, in which case if I did, how selfish was it to take me away and traumatize my family and my children? So what I've done now is like, it's been a long journey and this happened 10 years ago. So it's taken a long time to shield myself and say, 
okay, if I feel this, then what can I do about it to either protect myself, to learn more about and diffuse it? So for instance, like I told you about the um, book rights, right? So they have a writer that they develop the series with. We go out and we pitch the series. And, and this was a time when American Horror Story was really big. And so they decided to go dark with it. Mm-hmm. So we were at FX, we're pitching it. They talk about Stephanie's character having a brain tumor and that her husband, who's a cop, you know, finally has a reason for her visions to happen, right? Because the tumor is located in the visual cortex and whatever it is. And as soon as they said that, I got this huge vibration. I'm like, this is going to happen. And I'm like, I'm in a TV pitch meeting with a network. I'm like, this is, this is, this is a little, okay. I'm like, it's going to don't sell, don't sell, don't sell. Like I'm not being logical in this moment, but in yeah. my head, I'm like, don't sell, don't sell, don't sell. It doesn't sell. Two years later, I am in Chicago at home and I am, I'm having a headache that's lasting about 10 hours. Never had a migraine before. So my doctor's like, I need you to go to the emergency room because you might have a brain bleed. So I go to the hospital and they do a CT scan on the brain. And sure enough, they find a tumor at the base of my brain. And I start laughing. Yeah. Because in my gut, I know it's nothing. It ended up being part of the heart attack that I had with the amniotic fluid embolism. It was scar tissue at the base where the occipital region is. And so it ended up being nothing, but I laughed because I felt it and I cannot explain that. Did I manifest? No, I didn't manifest that, but. But a tumor was there before and, and maybe you right. be, something about that triggered some level of consciousness that. When you can explain it to me, that would be fantastic <laughs> because I've been going down this path of quantum entanglement and like trying to understand and it's too heady for me, but, but really Really, I, I believe, like, if you're an anxious person, you're an anxious person. So if you think that the plane's going to go down and you're about to get on it, I don't know how to guide you on that. But I do differentiate between a real premonition and what a casual thought is, if you're interested in well, knowing. Well, let me, here, here, this is what I'm, I'm thinking about. And it, so in the, the book that I'm writing about the self, there's the idea is that the self is like a series of Russian nesting dolls. The self is basically there to negotiate between our life force and reality. Mm-hmm. So at our very core, we're in an energy system that's resisting entropy. Uh, that's what life does. And that's what cells basically do. And so at our cellular core, we are an energy system resisting entropy. And the difficulty with that is energy is one of these things that's pretty ineffable to our ordinary understanding. So we have to kind of live with this mystery of our own being. But then on top of that, there's an animal self, which is all of these cells coming together, having, you know, seeking food, reproducing, staying alive, bonding, ordering itself in time, kind of basic cognition is happening. On top of that, there's a linguistic self that enmeshes us in our culture, gives us words in a way of sort of labeling reality. And then there's an egoistic self that kind of comes out of that. And then there's a transcendent self, which is kind of ultimately what we are trying to do, which is reconcile all these other layers of self that become misaligned. And a lot of these self processes are happening in ways that are far out of our conscious awareness. Like we're not really consciously aware that we're made up of 36 trillion cells or we're not even aware normally what those cells are doing. And we're not even aware of how our cognition is actually functioning, but these things are happening. And then occasionally there are these moments where these different layers kind of puncture through or come through, or we have these moments. And, you know, I think this is what spiritual and contemplative practices are doing or trying to reconcile this. And it seems to me in some ways, what you're describing is 
almost like these different layers of self are presenting are becoming manifest in ways that are extraordinary that are not through sort of our normal aggregating or conceptual processes. I don't know if I'm explaining this very well, but as you're speaking, I keep thinking about, Oh, it's like what you're struggling with is having these different layers in, 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 in your own terms, but it's like these different layers of self that are making themselves evident, but not in ways that sort of are ordinary. And that must just be extraordinarily challenging in terms of having to come up with your own sense of, oh, wow, my being is giving me lots of different kinds of information here. And we don't really have, I think particularly in our contemporary culture, we don't have a place for that in the same way. No, that makes sense. That's beautifully said. I I think that some of these experiences have been fast-tracked where I haven't taken my master's or my PhD to get to the levels that sometimes these things commit me and hit me at a thousand miles an hour. So I then have to backtrack and figure out how I got to that moment. And there's a huge gap of understanding. So it makes perfect sense. I mean, they're, they're hitting me and then they're not showing up for another three months and then something else happens and it manifests in my body differently. And I'm like, is this post-trauma? Is this, you know, where, where do, which box do I fit this in and how, and everybody has their opinion about what this is, but it's happening inside of my body and the connection between the body and whatever this is, I feel it's spirit. But so if the connection between those two had been severed along with my C-section. So it's been a process of tethering it together. Yeah. Yeah. And the time thing is still a mystery then. <laughs> Total mystery. Total mystery. Like but time are, itself is a mystery. So too, I mean, if there's any consolation there. Good. I'm glad. I mean, uh, and then when you learn about all the dark matter and everything, you like, don't even know what all, most of that is. I'm yeah. just, it blows my mind about what we don't know. And so we only have our experiences and our life journeys to just document and, and share, but it's, it's, it's definitely been a journey, a journey to eviscerate the ego, the wounded ego, the traumas, the, you know, and I think that that's what happens later in life. You're just like, what am I doing this all for? What am I here for? What is this experience for? What am I imparting? What, um, what am I sharing? Am I okay? If, you know, if I share nothing, you know, it's all of that, but yeah, I think what you're saying makes perfect sense to me. And I think I'll be on this journey for the rest of my life. This isn't something that, that ends when our body does. Sure. Well, this actually goes to the next question mm-hmm. very well, which is who's writing your life story? <laughs> <laughs> I am. I will. I'm in as much control as I think I am. And maybe that's part of the ego. But, but the things that are happening in my life most of the time I don't believe they're happening. So if I don't record them, document them, share them, present witnesses, experiences, it doesn't seem real. I worked in reality TV my whole career. It feels like I'm outside of myself looking in at this world of like I'm producing because it doesn't seem real. And so when you have these experiences, if there wasn't somebody else to validate it, did it really exist? I mean, I guess it's still saying if a bear poops in the woods, right? Did it really happen? But, but the, (laughs) but my feeling is like, if this didn't, if I can share this moment, I, I mean, if I had this moment and let's say the thinking about the brain tumor 
was something, but I didn't share that as a, as a fear of mine and then have the documentation from the hospital two years later about what happened and have this timestamp of the pitch meeting at FX be two years before and the conversation, like no one believe it. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I'm on overdrive, you know, just constantly documenting it and then will be edited later at the end of my life. Right. But I, I think there, there, I mean, there's gotta be some question in your mind, like, why is this happening to me? It's interesting. I don't ask that question. Let's just take the actual amniotic fluid embolism, which is a one in 40,000 risk, right? So there are many survivors like, why did this happen to me? There are many people and family members that unfortunately have family members who didn't survive. It's like, why did this happen to me? I don't ask that question. If we're asking the question of why is the spiritual thing happening or what this I was thinking more of the spiritual than the particular trauma. I, what has felt intuitively right as to why it's happening is that I built my entire career on targeting mass audience, right? The, with documenting and, and showing and researching. So when this happens and I'm married to who I'm married to and really me proving myself was really proving it to him because part of that unconditional love is like, wait, I'm letting you know that I exist outside of my body. So if I permanently die, our love doesn't die. I'm still around. And so if you're not there to actually feel it, then it stops because you don't believe it. So it's part of this mission, like, oh no, you have to believe it because I've met the love of my life. I don't want this to end. I don't know what anyone believes about past lives or future lives or anything, but I don't want to be a day without this person. And that's in spirit as well. So if he stops believing, then I have a hard time with that. And so the whole out-of-body experience, all of these experiences that happen now, I don't ask why, I just don't shut up. I guess if there's any gift I have is not the gift of feeling it, is the gift of saying it. Uh-huh. Now, um, are you having experiences that you're having premonitions and then nothing manifests from it? Are you, are you getting sort of negative information coming in sometimes? I, I don't know the answer to that because if I have a vision of something happening, like the park in walking through and a drug deal going around, mm-hmm. I don't have evidence to prove that it didn't. And Jonathan asked me the same question. So you guys should hang out all the time. <laughs> so, uh, but he's like, yeah, because there could be false. And I right, said, right. no, it's, it's, it's valid. I now just, there's too many things that have been right that I just, I feel it. I sense it. I say it. If it doesn't happen, okay, it doesn't happen, but, Mm -hmm. but I don't know how to quantify it. Well, that actually leads really well into the next question. I'm just your producer. Let's uh, (laughs) let's go with the segues. Um, which is, do you own your shit or does your shit own you? (laughs) I own my shit. It's been, it's been a long process, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm the first, like with the kids, you know, whether it's hormones or anything. And I, I'm, batshit crazy. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And, and they're like, mommy, did you take your pill this morning? <laughs> did mommy take her happy pill this morning? I'm like, you know what? I don't like that. You, you're acknowledging it. Um, so I'm the one that's, that's saying, I'm so sorry. And, and children need to hear their parents apologize and owning their stuff. Um, I have called too many people out on their shit and lots of people don't want to own their shit. So then you lose friendships. I, I own everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the most difficult thing for us to do yeah. because when you acknowledge your problems, then it means you have to do something about them. <laughs> yeah. But it's also a relief too. I mean, once you pop that 
that air bubble that that is filled with pressure of like I'm tired of living a certain way. And once that truth is out, it causes you to change. Hopefully it causes you to change, right? You, you make different decisions. My decisions now with this kind of rebirth, so to speak, um, are totally different than they were before. And can you, can you describe that? Like, yeah, I, you know, my, if I'm saddened about a friendship or somebody has done me wrong, instead of just cutting them out or throwing a stick of dynamite and just, retaliating or just cutting them out of my life completely and ghosting and never now I'm like, obviously my compassion and empathetic side comes in and says something must be going on with this person to do that. So I don't immediately rip the bandaid off and say, screw you. I then engage with, I'm sorry that it came out that way, or I'm sorry that you took it that way, but I'm either way. I apologize for how, I communicated it because obviously it's hitting something that I didn't intend. And that opens a different conversation than what it would have been before. Before, maybe I would have been embarrassed. I would have been like, this person doesn't even understand what they're they're saying or doing, whether it's family, friends, or foe. It's just, I take more time because that person has invested their time and their energy with me. So the communication that happens now, like I said, that moment is really special and I don't want to have superficial ones anymore. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that in your after your rebirth, you suddenly have this extraordinary sense capacity now. How do you deal with ordinary life turmoil when you have extraordinary sense information coming in? Not well. <laughs> yeah. Not well. I mean, it is practically impossible to do to go to kid birthday parties. It was it was impossible the first five years. Um, I couldn't be around other people because I'm alive and no one in that circle could have understood the level of transformation that does for one human soul. They might have lost their grandparents or they've experienced death from a, at an arm's length. But here I was like, you would never speak to me again and it wouldn't bother you because life continued you wouldn't know any different. And so when somebody would talk to me about a sale, you know, or the weather, it was like, I need to get out of here. It's not that I can no longer have trivial conversations. And my children suffered over that, obviously, because they weren't invited for play dates. You know, it was hard to relate to me. Yeah. I used to be extroverted and Jonathan jokes about because he's the UFC guy. He was the introvert. <laughs> and now he has stepped into himself and, as, and is quite sociable. And I'm looking at him like, eh, you know, I need to pull myself back. Um, and I've become quite introverted. So when I feel things, they, they hit me and then I'm, I'm very quick to reach out to that person, but it's usually like one person. And then I zone into that person and then, it just comes out like whatever that, that feeling is that I'm feeling it's, it's not uncomfortable. Whereas before maybe I, most people would avoid talking to people about probably the most vulnerable positions ever in their lives. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's my comfort zone. Yeah. That actually is a good segue for our next question, which is, um, how do you find love? I have found love. I have found it in, in Jonathan and I found love for myself, but it, it had been this, again, this evolution. So I didn't have it 
and I go to China. I did the whole eat, pray, love thing before I, uh-huh. before that came out. But I, I do this. I'm like, okay, obviously I need to love myself before I can bring in love. And then I understood where, where it was that I felt I was unlovable processed through that wrote down my list of the things that I wanted in characters of like my soulmate and what I wanted and how I wanted to give love. And then Patty Stanger, who is a matchmaker, she, like I met her six weeks later, she was starting her reality show and she introduced me to this UFC economist and he just showed up. And I think this was obviously before my near death experience, but I was already on this path of enlightenment of like trying to step up what I was feeling. So once I met him, I was like, I see his golden heart. Like I felt it. I felt, I felt his altruism. I felt his compassion and he didn't even feel that for himself. Like he didn't feel like he was sharing any of that, but I saw right through it and give it, given where I'd come from five weeks before in China, it was like, I was able to perceive things so differently. So maybe that helped him come out of his shell a little differently, but he, there was no protection on that. And there was no protection on me. So love came in a way of like every benchmark that we've hit, like meeting, engagement, marriage, pregnancy, pregnancy, the trauma, whatever it was, all of that has taken us to a deeper level of love. Um, I want to go back a little bit when you were talking about learning to love yourself. Mm. So my mother grew up detached emotionally. So when she got pregnant with me, so I'm the last child, she was well in her thirties and she likes to tell everybody that she got pregnant with me on an IUD. And now she'll tell you that she denies it. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, 84, you remember whatever, but everybody around you remembers you telling this. So what does that do for a child growing up and hearing that you got pregnant and hung up on the doctor when they told you you were pregnant because it was impossible? It means that you weren't valued. You weren't wanted. And there were plenty of traumatic moments in childhood. Growing up, you feel like, okay, you're not special. You're not wanted. You're not valued. And so I made it my life's mission early on at such an early age to leave my household, to work hard, to be independent, because as long as we're paying for this, you'll do this. And there was a lot of control. And my mother was fascinated with celebrity and entertainment. So she would just get lost in entertainment. I understand now through her upbringing, why it was so important. And I went into entertainment at a young age as an FU to her, like, oh, you talk about them at arm's length, but I'm going to know them. Yeah. I'm going to work with them. Yeah. And so that was my motivation when I was, I know that I was creative and I've, it found, and it worked out. Maybe there's, you know, a soul contract and you say, okay, this is, these are the parents you're going to have, and this is the life you're going to have, and this is the career you're going to have. But until this moment that we're interviewing, it's like, I didn't really think too much about the fact that I chose that career as an FU Mm -hmm. and that it's shifted completely since my near death experience. And actually more recently where I'm more comfortable saying, if I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to work in it. I'm okay. And if I do, but I'm not, I'm not attached to it anymore as a feeling of value. So in the beginning of the interview, you talked about like, who am I? I was always my career because who am I wasn't valued. Yeah. And so 
what does that do? Okay, I was making money. I had this great career. I was nominated for Emmys. I had sat on the Grammy board. I All these great things as a young adult. And I didn't have love. Yeah. I went from relationship to relationship, but I was detached. No different than my mother because there's pain. So I'm not going to get attached because if I get attached, I could lose you. And if I lose you, then you're leaving me. And in which case, then that's too much pain. So let me attract a type of person that I'm going to really take control over. And then I'll leave when I'm ready to leave. And it got exhausting. Yeah. That hamster wheel got exhausting. So there were two hamster wheels at the same time, right? You have this this career just to keep you, the accolades coming. But if you had a flop of a of a show or you couldn't get your next job, you were feeling undervalued and you were a loser. Yeah. And then so in between that time, I would find a new relationship and embrace that. And that was my next project. And someone's loving me, but I'm not loving anybody and it's really not the love that I want. So it's not so fulfilling. And I cannot believe we're having this conversation. I may, I don't have this conversation with my therapist. <laughs> so <laughs> then you get to the point where you're just exhausted, both career and that. So I had, a, I was running a, a division of a very large production company called Endemol. At the time I went to China and I took the couple of weeks and I went to China and I detached from everything. And I went on this hundred day retreat, which was, no sex, no alcohol, no party, just you go to work and you come home and you meditate. And in the silence, and I don't know if you found this, but in the silence is when you pick up a lot mm-hmm. and you sit with yourself and it is not comfortable. Right. So that hundred days was when, you know, I decided to leave Miami and move to LA. That was also the hundred days that I wrote down what, what I wanted in my soulmate. It was also after the hundred days, it was three weeks after the hundred days that I met Jonathan. I think we're up to our last question, Okay, which is where are you going from here? (laughs) Right now the book is titled 37 seconds after. Okay. (laughs) Uh, It, but it's a, it's a group project. Like my middle child titled it, the experiences are lived experiences and it might be a book that never gets done, but it's for me and our family. It's, it's not like, Oh, look, this happened. And let me show the rest of the world. The book has, doesn't have a direction. It doesn't, um, doesn't have a focus. The publisher was like, you know, well, let me see a proposal. And I'm like, I don't know what it is. And I don't know if it'll ever get published. It's more of me sharing on paper an expression, which I never thought I would before of, moments to not hold on to them in the cells of my body. Because what I've learned is that, you know, the cells of the body do remember trauma. So if I can release it almost immediately onto paper, those are valuable lessons for me and that I can look back and say, okay, this, this was a new coping mechanism. And it's also a good teaching tool. I continue to speak. I love that. I love sharing information with clinicians. I like tethering between this world of science and spirit. I do want to delve deeper openly about the spiritual side because I get asked about it a lot, but not on somebody else's timeline. It's more of let's delve deeper in that near-death experience and what what am I missing because some of it is sticking and I haven't been ready to deal with that because the rest of the stuff that I write about, stuff that I could prove, had witnesses to, had experiences where 
they're very well documented. The near-death experience is a little tricky. So know. can you describe to me a little bit more about what, what the near-death experience is and like? And Yeah, so the near-death experience is more of after you flatline. And some people don't flatline through it, so no blood pressure, no no heartbeat asystole. And what happens from that moment forward before you're resuscitated? Mm-hmm. That is considered the near-death experience, the out-of-body experience, sure. the the stuff that I witnessed that was happening in the, the operating room after I flatlined, after my eyes were taped shut, the spirits that I saw surrounding the when I was completely flatlined and what I saw and the thousands of spirits there, the fact that I see spirits, including my husband's father, who I never met. Mm-hmm messages that are given that continue to happen periodically. And then the empathic way that I feel people's illnesses, I do believe that they're connected to the post near death experience because I'm more sensitive to it. Yeah. It's hard to talk about because I can't wrap my logical head around it. And whenever I try to deny its existence, something else happens that smacks me upside the head that says you cannot deny this. So the fact that I saw that woman's mother next to her screaming, mm-hmm. it was maybe there's a quantum physics explanation of energy and that I could feel her father's energy 3,000 miles away through her because she's tied to him. Mm-hmm. It's extraordinary to think about. Or maybe we just don't have a an explanatory mechanism right now that can account for an experience like that. Correct, correct. So yeah. I only have what I have now. So it's... It's more of like what happens in my future. I'm still going down this rabbit hole Mm -hmm. because it continues to happen in my body and in my mind and in my soul. So the closer I can get to truth without LSD would be great. (laughs) (laughs) Have you tried tried LSD? No, you know, when I did try um, an MDMA journey, Uh so that was something different. The, The shaman said, she was like, I think because, because they're doing the psilocybin, right? And I signed up for at NYU to do the maps, like the psychedelic studies, but I haven't been admitted yet. I've been trying. Um, The thing that scares me about the psilocybin and the LSD is that it really is not a grounding plant. No, it's not. And I've already been outside of my (laughs) body. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that terrifies me. Sure. That I have, and maybe that's a control thing or whatever, but I'm totally traumatized from that out of body experience. So, if I'm going to use a plant to take me on a journey outside of my body, that is not what no, I, I think. Do. I think that's wise. Um, yeah. So the shaman agreed. And so ended up doing this, this journey. My, my focus on that journey was to connect my body and my spirit. Cause I felt that ever since I came back into my body after the near death experience, it's like I, I talk about it as an umbilical cord. So when you flatline, it gets cut. But I was out of my body, even though time and space don't exist in this other dimension. There was a lot of download in that 37 seconds. So when I came back into my body, and there's a video that I did in, through my my therapy, you see my body in a lot of pain, that I feel like it just got all discombobulated and severed. Like where the, your dantian, where the inner child, where the womb is, it's exactly where my cut is. Mm-hmm. It's exactly where all the trauma is. And it was severed. So I've been disconnected for the longest time, sexually, physically, emotionally, all of it. And so I, in like when we talked about 
what's trauma, like how are you dealing with trauma versus how are you dealing with the spiritual or the, the, any kind of premonitions, it, it literally is compartmentalized. Yeah. So when I wanted to get back into my body, this was a way to do it. So it was a matter of going on this journey. My focus was let me reconnect the two so I can love both parts as equally as possible, but live in my body. So my, my here and after is to live presently, but connected. Mm-hmm. And doing that is through acknowledging it, like we are here today, talking openly about it and sharing those moments as real as they are. I don't think that'll ever change for me. Well, thank you so much for sharing. This is great. It's been a really just insightful conversation. So thank you for taking me back to all my childhood trauma. I appreciate it. (laughs) Now I need to go to therapy. If you feel like you're getting a lot out of our show, there's another University of Chicago Podcast Network show you should check out. It's called Entitled. Human rights matter, but conversations about rights can be polarizing, confusing, and frustrating. On Entitled, lawyers Claudia Flores and Tom Ginsburg have traveled the world getting into the weeds of global human rights debates. They use that expertise to explore the stories and thorny questions around why rights matter, And what's the matter with rights? Subscribe to Entitled, part of the award-winning University of Chicago Podcast Network.